The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks on track for their second down week in three, as hawkish comments from the Fed outweigh easing inflationary pressures. Work hardcore or be shown the door. That's the message from Twitter CEO Elon Musk as a flood of staffers reportedly chose the latter ahead of yesterday's 5 p.m. deadline. Now Washington is looking to get involved. Now, turns out the pre-sale was the only sale when it comes to Taylor Swift's now nearly sold out Eras tour. As Ticketmaster says, there's not enough stock left to meet all the demand. Plus, new allegations from FTX over its former CEO, who is reportedly trying to hide millions from U.S. investigators. And then later on, it is sentencing day for former Silicon Valley darling Elizabeth Holmes after a January conviction. It's Friday, November 18th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off your Friday morning with U.S. stock futures. They're showing some green, but they've been fluctuating all morning. It's going to be a modest move no matter what at the opening bell, at least for right now. The Dow is implied higher by just about 45 points. The S&P by about 10 points to the upside and the Nasdaq up by 36. So, again, gains modest and they've been jumping all over the place in the pre-market. Now, the bond market, we are still seeing yields tick slightly higher. 3.81% or thereabouts for the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield. The two-year note yield just about 4.49% right now. In energy, oil prices continue their near-term decline at least over the call it the last few weeks or so. But today we're seeing a very modest bounce in prices. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate WTI crude prices up about one third of one percent right now. Eighty one dollars and ninety four cents. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, just about flat on the session. Eighty nine dollars and eighty cents in cryptocurrencies. We were watching the twenty thousand mark before. These days we're kind of closely watching the sixteen to seventeen thousand dollar area. Right now, cryptocurrency prices pretty much up across the board. Bitcoin up about one half of one percent, sixteen thousand seven thirty one and change. Ethereum prices up about one percent, one thousand two hundred thirteen dollars and ninety eight cents. A quick check now on the overnight action in Asia and the early trade in Europe. We've got Arabile Gumade standing by in our London newsroom with the latest there. Happy Friday morning, Arabile. Happy Friday then, Dominique. Yeah, so the market out in Asia kicking off the day's trading with some mixed picture here. We're seeing uh, the Shanghai Composite go down uh, two-tenths, uh, or rather two-thirds of a percent nearly on the close of that trading picture with the Hang Seng also going down around a third of a percent. Very interesting to note then that the Japan's market did come out uh, with some interesting data. The core CPI index number there uh, rising to 3.6 percent. Very important data because that is higher than expected and also the fastest pace for 
four core CPI in 40 years. So the last time it hit that figure was in 1982. Of course, we are seeing some economic leaders as well head over to the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, APAC, uh, and they are kind of getting a sense of what else is said to happen out of that growth market. On to the European picture then, all green across this board. It does follow on from the uh, statements we have gotten from James Bullard yesterday. They're saying Lewis Fed president speaking really about that fund rate moving to between 5 and 7%, which has sparked a few interests uh, from uh, market uh, commentators and analysts saying to themselves, does that mean interest rates are set to go a whole lot higher from here and to what level? Because James Bullard did speak about rising interest rates being necessary to curb and push down inflation as much as possible. So more needing to be done. It's a similar sentiment we've also gotten out of Christine Lagarde, who is speaking at the European Bank uh, Congress, Banking Congress, that is, this morning. Uh, ECB President Christine Lagarde reiterating her commitment to tackling inflation, particularly with higher rates. We expect to raise rates further and withdrawing accommodation may not be enough. Ultimately, we will raise rates to levels that bring inflation back down to our medium-term target in a timely manner. Let's close out with some uh, uh, stocks data then as well. BHP raising its offer for rival Oz Minerals, giving the Australian miner a valuation of over $6 billion. Now, that takeover could become BHP's largest in over a decade and will expand its production of copper and nickel that is needed for electric vehicles. That's the picture for now out in Europe. Thank you very much, Arabile Goumade, with the latest action on what's happening with Europe and the close for the Asian markets. Let's get to some of this morning's top stories and an employee exodus apparently underway at Twitter. Bertha Coombs is here with those stories. Bertha, good morning. Hey, good morning, Dom. Twitter staff is suffering apparently a new wave of employee departures happening yesterday after a number of staff rejected Elon Musk's ultimatum, telling them that they would need to commit to, quote, hardcore work environment, uh, maintaining long hours at, quote, high intensity. Most spent the past 48 hours weighing options after waking up to Musk's email Wednesday morning requesting employees make a decision by 5 p.m. on Thursday. Those who did not opt in would be given three months of severance, according to Musk. Now, internal Slack messages shared with CNBC showed that engineers and other employees were posting goodbye messages to a chat group in the run-up to the deadline. Hundreds of salute emojis, meaning to indicate thank you for your service, were being streamed along with dozens of goodbye messages. After the deadline passed and the resignations became apparent, Twitter then emailed its remaining workforce, saying the company is temporarily closing its office buildings effective immediately and will reopen Monday. Along with the ultimatum email, Musk also issued stricter expectations for return to office and in-office work, telling managers they should be meeting with their teams in person, ideally at least once a week. Musk threatening to terminate managers who allow employees to work remotely if they are deemed anything less than, quote, exceptional without providing guidelines on what qualifies. Now, a group of Democratic senators, including Elizabeth Warren, are asking the Federal Trade Commission to investigate Twitter over concerns that Musk has, quote, 
undermined the integrity of the platform. In a letter addressed to FTC chair Lena Khan, the group of seven senators warned the platform was displaying serious willful disregard for the safety and security of its users since Musk took the helm several weeks ago. Don, no shortage of drama there. Incredible. No, no, no. And, and not just that. I, I think that there are some there are some folks, users of Twitter. You and I are both on the platform. Uh, there are some folks out there who are trying to hedge themselves right now against what the possibility of Twitter not existing in the future could look like. I, I've already gotten some notes from people on my direct messages saying, hey, we're going to use this platform going forward. Just so you know, here's how you can reach us. It's become a very weird kind of surreal scenario, don't you think? Yeah, it, it is a strange thing in that we've all come to rely on it. I mean, I've been on it now, what, for 12 years, I think, for a lot of us. Um, so this shakeup is, is certainly strange. And it's certainly, you know, I would imagine something they're going to study in business schools in terms of management and maybe what not to do, I would imagine. Yeah, I was just looking at my profile right now. It turns out I, it, it, it tells you, it, it says I joined in May of 2009. So it's been a pretty long stretch for me as well. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. We'll see you later on. Back on Wall Street, stocks coming off a second day of losses after Federal Reserve officials signaled their rate hiking campaign to tame inflation is far from over. The latest is St. Louis Fed President James Bullard saying, quote, the change in monetary policy stance appears to have had only limited effects on observed inflation, end quote. So let's talk more about this with Mark Hafley, chief investment officer at UBS Global Wealth Management. Uh, Mark, the, the comments from James Bullard at the St. Louis Fed, Fed had immediate market effects. We saw them in interest rates. We saw them in certain commodity prices and the equity markets. Is this a game changer or is he just basically telling us what we already know that this is going to be higher for longer? Well, I think he's telling us what uh, we already know, but some of us don't want to hear. And that is that the Fed is committed to getting inflation under control. Historically, that has meant raising rates up to the level of inflation. Now, we don't think that that's going to be the case this time, but we have to be respectful of what it's taken in the past. So, Mark, with that in mind, we're, we're showing a panel worth of economic data, a lot of it in inflation related, CPIs, PPIs, whatnot. There, there's a maybe a growing consensus. It's certainly not consensus yet, a growing one that inflation may have peaked or be in the process of peaking. If that is the case, what does that then mean for the prospects for the economy going forward? Are we doomed to a recession? Well, it has gotten more difficult to ensure uh, a soft landing. I mean, that that's clear for, for a couple of reasons. I think the resilience of the economy, uh, on the one hand, is very welcome, but it's also uh, kind of made the Federal Reserve realize that they may have to keep tightening for longer, and that could ultimately result in a, a bit of a deeper recession. I think, you know, what what people need to realize is that coming off the peak of inflation is good. And that could lead to, you know, something like a Santa Claus rally. But what is the real open question, and, we're, and one of the reasons we have concerns about next year, is that coming off the peak doesn't mean that you're coming back to target. 
And what nobody knows is does inflation get stuck along the way, say in the 4% range or something like that, requiring the Fed to do more. And I think that's reflected, that kind of thinking is reflected in some of what we're hearing from the Fed. Mark, it sure sounds like you're a little bit more, I mean, cautious. I guess we could use the cliche, cautiously optimistic. With that in mind, do you feel as though the best places to be right now are in some of those places in the equity markets that are perhaps less prone to economic cycles, more defensive in nature? Absolutely. Uh, You know, first, I would say that one of the sectors we like is energy uh, and and value and energy, you know, has been a tremendous performer this year. So it's not we're not saying you have to exit the, the equity markets, but we have a focus on value over growth. Uh, value we've found has outperformed whenever inflation is higher than 3%, and that's certainly the case today. And then we're also looking at things like consumer staples and healthcare, which have been strong performing sectors. And we think that, that being a little more defensive in your equity allocation makes sense as we, we believe that earnings expectations and, and the earnings in, say, the first and second quarter may come lower as some of this economic activity slows because the Fed's uh, rate hikes start to bite. Now, Mark, before we let you go, one of the other places that we're looking at a, a lot more these days, for obvious reasons, is the bond market. Treasury prices and interest rates have been a huge focus here. Right now, it looked pretty good if you had bought 10-year Treasury notes with a yield of 4.2%, seeing that as the yield is now 3.8 right now. Do we look more towards some of these yield plays? Do we look towards investment-grade corporates or treasuries with yields at 4% or above as attractive? We think so. You know, the good news for going into next year is that you can get a lot more income from high-quality bonds. And so that's certainly a part of our portfolios now. I think investors, our clients, are scrambling a little bit to get more familiar with uh, actually earning income on bonds, uh, you know, high quality bonds. Again, we would also look to investment grade uh, as well here because we think that there's some opportunities there. All right. Mark Hayfley at UBS Global. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend. When we come back on the show, what the new CEO of FTX has to say about the company and its finances as he looks to shepherd it through Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings, plus more fallout over Taylor Swift's first tour in five years, what Ticketmaster is doing in the face of record-breaking demand, and then later on, why job cuts at Amazon won't end with the new year. CEO Andy Jassy's message to staff ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org moneytools. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers, three stock stories of the morning. Gap swinging to a third quarter profit as sales beat forecast. The retailer benefiting from strong demand for formal clothing and dresses as consumers return to work, travel and social events following the virus pandemic. Gap does expect fourth quarter sales to be down in the mid single digits as volumes slowed at the end of October into November. Nonetheless, those Gap shares up seven and a half percent pre-market. Palo Alto Networks is rallying as the cybersecurity company's third quarter results beat forecasts. The firm is also, quote unquote, broadly raising its outlook for the year. The CEO says customers are focusing on medium and longer term projects and the company needs to get them to close deals on sooner uh, on that basis. Those shares for Palo Alto up eight and a half percent and applied materials reporting better than expected fourth quarter results. The chip equipment maker is also guiding first quarter revenues above estimates on hopes easing supply chain issues will help it meet pent up demand. Those shares up four percent. It's important. Applied materials is viewed by some traders as a leading indicator for the computer chip industry. Now to the latest developments in the collapse of FTX and the fallout since the Bahamas securities regulator says it ordered the crypto assets of FTX's Bahamas unit to a government controlled wallet for safekeeping one day after its parent company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. But FTX is pushing back its Bahamas unit filing for Chapter 15. That's a provision that non-U.S. based companies use to protect themselves from creditors. Now, all of this as FTX's new CEO, John Ray, who, by the way, oversaw the Enron bankruptcy back in the day, gave a very blunt assessment of the company's failings in a court filing yesterday, saying, quote, in his 40 years of legal and restructuring experience that he had never seen, quote, such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. Ray adding employee expenses were approved with emojis and staff in the Bahamas used corporate money to buy homes and other items without any kind of documentation. FTX also used an auditor, Prager Metis, which operates, it says, in the metaverse. So we've got a lot to unpack. Let's bring in Anita Ramaswamy, reporter at TechCrunch, and the co-host of the Chain Reaction podcast. Uh, Anita, the intro I just read into you was long on purpose because there really is that much stuff to talk about. The yeah, filings there, yesterday, I, I don't know what stood out to you in your mind. There were so many things that stood out to me, but I think it's very ironic that the new CEO was the same person brought in after Enron because I feel this is so similar to that. I mean, I remember at that time, you know, we saw a lot of the auditing firms like Arthur Anderson really get in trouble because they weren't enforcing any internal controls. And that's exactly what we're seeing with FTX. It's not just the company that was engaging in wrongdoing. It was a lot of other parties that were enabling them to do that as well. And so just like what happened when Arthur Anderson fell, I really have a feeling that the auditors and the other parties involved, I mean, it's just going to be chip after chip falling. 
So, so I, I, I needed. It's interesting only because it, we we keep getting incremental news and and, and data along these stories. The, the, the latest, the latest just happened with Bitstamp. I, I'm looking at their Twitter feed right now because just in the last 20 minutes, Bitstamp, which is a big exchange, right, that that trades many yeah. of these cryptocurrencies, said that we are halting the trading of FTT, which is the FTX token, and CEL, which is the Celsius token. On November 22nd, 2022, at 12 p.m. UTC. If you plan on performing any more trades, please do so before the deadline. Withdrawals will still be possible after this date, and it links to an info piece. Uh, This is not anything surprising. These two tokens are from companies that are in extreme distress right now. But but what exactly are you going to expect, Anita? What, What can we expect to see in terms of sentiment around crypto because of developments like this? The entire crypto ecosystem is just so intertwined and all of these companies really depend on each other. And so if one giant like FTX falls, you know, they had such influence over the industry that it's it's really just going to lead to this linkage and people are going to lose trust in crypto at the end of the day. A lot of people were waiting for this moment. A lot of people had been saying for a while, you know, crypto is scammy. And unfortunately, it's going to reflect on the legitimate companies in the space as well. Because when you have someone like Sam Bankman fried <clears throat> excuse me, when you have someone like Sam Bankman fried who is so trustworthy, and now the, the fact that people can't trust him, I mean, it's sort of like, who can you trust? And I think people are just going to be questioning at every single thing that companies say. I mean, the, the level of deception was just so layered. There were so many different things that FTX said. Not only was Sam Bankman fried engaging with the regulators, but he also, his messages were leaked recently and he was talking to a reporter about how his effective altruism thing, he he didn't actually intend to do good in the first place. He didn't really care about it that much. Um, he actually had some very derogatory things to say about regulators. And so I think it just goes to show you can't take anything at face value, particularly in crypto. And that is very much going to hurt market sentiment because of how intertwined all of these companies are. All right. Anita Ramaswamy over at TechCrunch, thank you very much. Uh, a, a huge story for sure. I'm sure you'll be busy. Uh, have a great weekend. Thank you. Still on deck for the show here, a closer look at the r- rising risks of drought on the lifeblood of big technology. Yeah, big tech and the in- impact it could have on all sectors of the economy. We'll want exchanges back with that story after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. It may be snowing in the Northeast, but a new report this week shows more than half of the nation is now in drought conditions. That's up 9% from just a month ago. This is hitting all sectors of the economy, particularly data centers, the lifeblood of big technology, which need vast amounts of water to operate. Diana Olick reports in her continuing series on the rising risks from climate change.
Data centers store and transfer all the digital information we use, which is a lot and growing. So they run very, very hot. The cheapest and most common way to cool them is water, a lot of it. Water tends to be much cheaper than power. And so it's a pure financial decision for many players. In just one day, the average data center could use 300,000 gallons of water to cool itself, the same water consumption as 100,000 homes, according to researchers at Virginia Tech, who also estimated that one in five data centers draws water from stressed watersheds, mostly in the West. There is, without a doubt, risk if you're dependent on water. These data centers are set up to operate 20 years. So what is it going to look like in 2040 here, right? That's why when Cyrus One, formerly a REIT but purchased this year by investment firms KKR and Global Infrastructure Partners, moved into the drought-stricken Phoenix area, it used a different, albeit more expensive, method of cooling. So that was sort of our, our aha moment where we had to make a decision. We changed our design to go to zero consumption water so that we didn't have that sort of risk. Realizing the risk in New Mexico, Meta ran a pilot program on its Las Lunas data center to reduce relative humidity from 20% to 13%, lowering water consumption. It has since implemented this in all of its centers. But Meta's overall water consumption is still rising steadily, with about one-fifth of that water last year coming from areas deemed to have water stress. It does actively restore water and set a goal last year to restore more water than it consumes by 2030, starting in the West. But while companies with their own data centers can do that, data centers that lease to multiple clients are increasingly being bought by private equity firms in search of high-growth real estate. There's a lot of new players that may not be as sophisticated, that may be looking at a short-term time horizon, that aren't worried about what the watershed looks like in 10 or 20 years because they're probably not going to be around. Today, the COP27 UN Climate Summit in Egypt wraps up, and one of the accomplishments there was a new drought alliance of seven countries, including the U.S., formed to look at new ways to make populations, economies, and businesses more resilient against drought. I also spoke with Microsoft President Brad Smith from the summit, who said the company is investing in new technologies to recycle water in its data centers, and he said he was, quote, bullish on Microsoft's ability to meet its goal of being water positive by 2030. Dom? Uh, so it's a fascinating story. You don't think about the fact that big tech and data centers are tied to this. But, I mean, data center real estate is also an incredibly valuable sector overall. We know that, 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 that tech is, is at risk here. But is it also the value of those centers that is at risk as well because of this? Absolutely. I mean, there are a handful of data center REITs that people are invested in. And then when you have a company that might own its own real estate, if that data center is no longer able to operate, then the value of that building itself goes dramatically down. And that comes off the balance sheet of the company. So real estate, obviously, tech and data centers, it's all intertwined. All right. Diana Olek with the rising risks tied to data centers. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Straight ahead on the show, taking a look at this week's big insider buys and how the biggest buy this week could help its fight against an activist investor. We'll be right back with more after this. Stocks stuck in a holding pattern as Wall Street eyes its second down week in three. Futures right now swinging between gains and losses. Some bad blood brewing between Taylor Swift, her fans, and Ticketmaster. After this week's chaotic pre-sale event, what Live Nation is doing now that could anger even more. 
would-be concertgoers. And an employee exodus underway at Twitter after Elon Musk's hardcore ultimatum. It's Friday, November 18th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Schuin for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off this half hour on a Friday morning with U.S. equity futures pointing towards some modest gains at the opening bell. The Dow's implied higher by roughly 80 points. The S&P higher by 15 and the Nasdaq implied higher by 55 points. So, so again, modest moves, but for right now, they're tilted towards the upside. To one of this morning's top stories and a rough week for Taylor Swift and her fans. And it's not getting any better. Bertha Coombs is here with those stories. Bertha, good morning. It isn't getting any better, Dom. Good morning. Ticketmaster announcing that it is now canceling the general public ticket sale for Taylor Swift's first tour in five years after a chaotic and glitch-filled pre-sale event. Ticketmaster says the general public sale is being called off due to, quote, extraordinarily high demands on ticketing systems and insufficient remaining ticket inventory to meet that demand. The company, which is owned by Live Nation, says more than 2 million tickets to the ERA's tour were sold Tuesday. That's a new single-day record, despite the tech issues and website crashes. Now, Ticketmaster goes on to say that Swift would need to book 900 stadium shows to meet demand, which equals about one show every night for the next two and a half years. With the general ticket sale canceled now, we're now seeing, of course, ticket resellers. Some of the prices that we're seeing uh, as they attempt to sell seats range from about $340 a ticket to $28 thousand dollars. The entire situation is seeing political fallout as well. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar says she sent a letter to Live Nation alleging Ticketmaster is abusing its dominant market positions. This as Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez tweets that the outages are a reminder that Ticketmaster is now a monopoly and the merger with Live Nation should never have been approved. Dom, you know, we haven't heard from Taylor Swift herself. But, uh, you know, I have to wonder, things like this make artists like her with so much clout maybe think about starting their own platform to to sell their tickets. If there's anyone who could probably do it, it's Taylor Swift, given the millions and millions and millions and millions of fans out there for sure. Uh, a, a lot of drama there for sure. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much for those yeah. stories. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you later on. Well, Chinese tech firms closing mostly higher today on the back of Alibaba's second quarter report yesterday. The e-commerce giant posting better than expected earnings, but falling short of forecasts for revenue. The company also announced an increase in its share buyback program. The CEO, Daniel Zhang, telling analysts he expects numbers to improve next year as COVID-19 restrictions begin to ease. Now, here's another one. JD.com. Right now, this morning, reporting results just a few moments ago. The e-commerce company in China topping revenue estimates as COVID lockdowns in China sparked more online shopping. So joining me now is Sid Chororia, portfolio manager at SC Asia. Sid, it's all very confusing. Alibaba, which is also e-commerce in China, says COVID-19 is hurting its results. JD comes out, e-commerce in China, and says that COVID-19 is helping their e-commerce sales. How exactly do you navigate that kind of market? 
Yeah, well, the true litmus test of a great business is how you perform during crisis. Uh, if you look at Alibaba, I mean, they reported $5 billion in free cash flow this quarter, uh, which is uh, amidst one of the most challenging periods in uh, in China in decades. Uh, the company, as you, as you mentioned, repurchased $18 billion of stock. Uh, that's 10% of its market cap. Um, um, you know, this, uh, just to put this in context, this is more stock that Alibaba has repurchased this year than Amazon has repurchased in its entire history. Um, and the company announced another 15 billion repurchase plan. Um, as you mentioned, Alibaba's growth has been, you know, the, the headline is low single digits, but you gotta put this into perspective uh, that it was a 30% base uh, last year. And so um, now the base is gonna get much better going forward. If you compare this to 10 cents, in the last three quarters, that was minus 2%, minus 3%, and 0%. Um, over, just, just to put this in context, I mean, Alibaba's 100 billion plus revenue business um, and in the 1 billion consumer club, there are very few businesses in the world with that sort of size and scale. A single day, a GMV was approximately flat, uh, that's 85 billion, that's almost two times um, Amazon's, that's more than two times Amazon's holiday season sales. Uh, the company is, uh, you know, I would say that with JD.com, the company is certainly uh, going to witness faster, uh, slightly faster growth than Alibaba. I, I would expect it to grow 15% over the next three years. The company's one-piece sales are not growing as fast, but it's, it's, I haven't taken a look at the recent earnings results, but it's the net services line, which is growing faster. And so... Um, I think, um, you know, my focus here is the free cash flow of both businesses, which is the right parameter as to how to value a business. We can discuss that if you like. So, 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 Sid, I, I, let's let's we've only got a few moments left here now. Uh, let's take us through. I mean, the opportunity that has happened over the last year, year and a half or so in Chinese tech stocks getting beaten up has created possible opportunities. What are your favorite picks then as a portfolio manager? What's the most attractive right now in, in China tech? Certainty in the stock market is expensive. When you have a deal, you pay a deal price for consensus. My top up pick is I prefer Alibaba and Pindodo uh, over Jindong. Um, you know, Alibaba's closing is is trading at its closing price uh, in, in its IPO when revenues have gone up 15 times from 8.5 billion to 120 billion. Free cash flow has gone up four times since IPO and it's still trading at close to IPO levels. Uh, the Warren Buffett indicator for total market cap to GDP ratio in China is currently 55%. In the United States, that's close to 150%. So my top pick is Alibaba for the very fact that it's aligned with China's long-term development goals, and the company generates a ton of cash. And I expect that to accelerate as the Chinese economy reopens mid-next year. All right. Sid Geraria over at SC, thank you very much. Alibaba is his top pick. Have a nice weekend. Coming up on the show, the World Cup kicks off this weekend, and for the first time ever, ever, U.S. sportsbooks operators are gearing up for a very big payday. But first, as we head out to break, a check on a few of this morning's big money movers. Shares of Farfetch falling ahead of the opening bell after the fashion platform posted a wider-than-expected third-quarter loss. Sales also coming in lower than expected. Those shares down 11% pre-market. Williams-Sonoma also lower, the retailer says, Higher shipping and freight costs hurt its gross margins, and it warns of quote-unquote macro uncertainty in its outlook. Williams-Sonoma shares down 7% pre-market. 
but raw store shares are jumping. The discount retailer posting better than expected earnings and revenues. Those shares up 16.5% in the pre-market trade. Stay tuned. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A quick market flash right now on shares of Tesla, which are up a percent right now pre-market. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, announcing a recall of certain 2021 to 2023 Model X vehicles over potential airbag issues. Just over 29,000 U.S. vehicles and its EVs are affected. Those Tesla shares, again, right now up about a percent on the heels of those recall announcements. Welcome back. Now, let's get your weekly top insider buys. For that, we send it out to Brian Sullivan. All right, it's time for your weekly exclusive insider buying segment. This is where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level execs with their own money. These aren't stock buybacks. These are execs buying their own stock. And as always, the info comes with our thanks to Verity Data. And as always, we are counting you down five to one. This week, there are some new names here, including a couple of companies I've actually never heard of before. All right, here we go. The fifth most insider buying this week is at Transocean Offshore, ticker rig, a $203,000 buy by the chairman. Obviously not afraid to buy into strength. Rig stock is up about 60% this year. The fourth biggest insider buy, Sage Therapeutics, a $500,000 purchase by the CEO who is buying into recent weakness at the stock. By the way, second time that Sage has made this top five insider buying list. We keep track every week, of course. Third most of the week is at Cogent Communications Holdings. $548,000 buy by a board member. It's the largest ever insider buy at Cogent, which is a D.C.-based internet company. Now to the top two. Second most insider buying, $687,000 by a board member. It's a Houston-based financial services company, Corbridge Financial, CRBG. And the biggest insider buy this week that is a nearly $5 million buy at Massimo, ticker MASI. The CEO, who is also a founder, picking up nearly 40,000 shares. Now, this company is under pressure from activist investors, so Verity notes that there may be some good PR to be had by making such a big insider buy. Stock's been cut in half this year. All right, there you go. Top five names this week, Transocean, Sage Therapeutics, Cogent Communications, Corbridge Financial, and Massimo. A reminder, outside of earnings season, we try to do this almost every Friday. Segment you will only see here on Worldwide Exchange or on CNBC Pro. Sign up for CNBC Pro today. All right. Thank you very much, Brian Sullivan, for that update there. This weekend marks the start of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. And for the first time, is kicking off as a legal sports betting franchise becomes widely available across the United States. Our Contessa Brewer joins us now with the latest there. It's uh, the most popular sport in the world, arguably, and now people can bet on it legally here in the U.S. What's it going to look like? Well, Dom, it's really exciting for people who love soccer or football, as the rest of the world calls it. And sportsbook operators are gearing up for the start of World Cup Sunday in Qatar. The American Gaming Association predicts $1.8 billion will be bet in the U.S. on the World Cup this year. For comparison purposes... New York State's handle, or the amount of money wagered in October, was $1.5 billion for all month. The sports books that we have talked to say they don't really know what they can expect because in 2018, the last World Cup took place just a month after the Supreme Court decision paving the way for states to legalize sports betting. 
Today, you have 31 states plus Washington, D.C. that offer it. And the sportsbooks are trying to game out how to maximize the opportunity for the tournament here. PointsBet tells us it is translating its app into Spanish so it can reach more soccer fans. DraftKings says soccer typically ranks as the number eight most popular sport on its platform. So it paid for a study of fans for the sports and and found out most of their betting now is coming in on favorites on Argentina and Brazil. FanDuel has the greatest number of bets, it says, coming in. I'm not that surprised by this for Team USA. If Team USA sort of outperforms expectations, you know, we'll you'll find the country gets behind it, starts to get excited about it. And that'll have a, a benefit to my business, to be sure. With odds of 150 to 1, clearly Team USA is a long shot. The U.S. plays Monday at 2 p.m. against Wales with all eyes about whether they're going to push forward on some enthusiasm and and nationalistic fervor coming out of the uh, U.S. portion of the soccer frenzy dome. I mean, but the, the, the point that you made, Contessa, about expanding the reach or the total addressable market for some of these betting platforms by putting their apps in Spanish to reach more football slash soccer fans is fascinating. How big of a catalyst could this be? Soccer is a growing sport in the U.S., but it is not even in the same ballpark, zip code, area code, if you want to call it, like baseball or football or the major U.S. sports. How long or how much are these betting know- platforms going to kind of look towards soccer as, as, as a possible market for, for real sports growth? It's such a great point, Dom. We know that the demographics that traditionally support soccer are growing in the United States. There's a growing, say, Latino population in the United States. That's one. Two, we know that engagement goes way up for sports, any sport, whether it's football, which is already popular, or baseball, or tennis, or ping pong during the pandemic. Any sport gets more fans and more fan engagement when there is sports betting involved. So could the opportunity to bet on various teams, whether it's Team USA or Argentina, could that actually make new soccer fans? We just don't know. This is unprecedented. If you look at Australia, which likes soccer about as much as the U.S. does, the last World Cup around where betting was widely available in Australia, they were pleasantly surprised by how much money came in on soccer. So we'll see what, whether you turn non-soccer fans into soccer fans or are you going to turn soccer fans into betting players? All right. Uh, a huge deal for sure with the FIFA World Cup. And by the way, Contessa, we have to put the plug in, right? You can watch a lot of the FIFA World Cup right here on NBC platforms and Peacock as well. So a lot of stuff going on yes. there. Contessa, very, th- thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Coming up on the show, new data showing investors poured nearly $23 billion into stocks in the last week. The biggest inflow in more than eight months. We've got details on all those fund flows coming up next. Keep it right here. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for a few top corporate stories that you may have missed this morning. First up is Twitter suffering a new wave of employee departures after a number of staff rejected Elon Musk's ultimatum, telling them that they would need to commit to a, quote, hardcore work environment. That was as of 5 p.m. yesterday. Number two, it is sentencing day for former Silicon Valley darling and Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes. She was convicted in January of duping investors and endangering patients while marketing a bogus blood testing device. 
Prosecutors have recommended Holmes be sentenced to 15 years, less than the maximum 20 years she could face, but far longer than her legal team's bid to limit her sentence to around 18 months. Prosecutors also want Holmes to pay more than $800 million in financial restitution. And number three, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy says the company will continue laying off employees next year. In a memo to employees, Jassy says it is the most difficult decision he's faced in the past year and a half as the CEO of the company. The company began cutting staff this past week in divisions, including devices and human resources as well. So we'll keep an eye on those Amazon job cuts. Well, investors are rushing back into equities at their fastest pace in about eight months. According to the latest data from EPFR Global out this hour, global stock funds saw inflows of $22.9 billion in the week ending November 16th. But while inflows into U.S. stocks surged, Europe saw its 40th straight week of outflows. That's the longest streak on record, by the way. Joining me now is Keith Lerner, co-chief investment officer over at Truist Wealth. Keith, the fund flow data is interesting, but maybe not surprising, given a massive discount that we've seen over the last several weeks to where we were at record highs. But should we put stake in this? Is this something where investors can say, hey, people are getting back in. I should join as well. Well, great to be with you first, Tom, on this Friday morning. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. The fund flows came in that likely happened after the market had this nice move off the lows. So I don't know, I don't know that there's a lot to, to really um, take from that in itself. What's more interesting is, um, you know, during this entire move down in the market this year, fund flows have been relatively flat this year. Where you've seen a lot of the action is there's been, um, after record inflows last year into the bond market, you've seen about half of that, over $250 billion come out this year. So, again, it's, it's a, you know, a seasonal positive period. We had a nice move off the lows. It's normal to see some of those fund flows come in after you've seen a move at this point. But our bottom line, Dom, is we think the upside in this market's probably capped around 5% from where we are today. And we actually see more relative opportunities in the fixed income market for the first time in, in more than a decade. Where in the fixed income market? Earlier this hour, we were talking to Mark Hayfley over at UBS uh, Global Wealth, and, and he was basically looking at some of these kind of higher quality bonds and investment grade corporates as well. But, but do you go out there bond picking or, 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 or do you find a fund? What exactly is attractive about about some of that corporate bond market right now? Well, I think right now we're just really trying to keep it simple because our base case is that recession is more probable next year. So you don't want to take a lot of credit risk at this point. So we're looking at high quality, say, government bonds, um, agency bonds. Uh, you could do that with funds or ETFs or individual bonds. That's really more dependent on the, the client's uh, situation. And most of this year, we've been kind of shorter or buying shorter bonds or short duration. And what we've done more recently is is actually uh, ex- extend the duration because what we think uh, we think an important shift is a, is likely to occur over the next you know three to six months or even into next year. Meaning, this year we've had one of the, the worst bond market uh, in the history of the index, the bond aggregate index, and a lot of that's because of concerns around inflation. We think the narrative in the market will likely shift from concerns about inflation to concerns about economic growth as all these rate hikes start to filter into the market and, and slow economic activity. And again, at this point, you're getting paid to wait in the fixed income market. So if the upside in the market's four to five percent, use an optimistic um, you know, uh, valuation metrics. Sure. And why not be in fixed income where you have less risk in our view? Of course, with two year yields right now, just about four and a half percent. It's probably an attractive thing for some investors out there. Keith Lerner, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. 
That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 